Good morning, Valley Bible Church, and thank you, worship team. This, this is a Valley Bible Church classic song from years ago that uh, Dan Snook introduced to us back when Dan was, was, our, was our interim youth pastor, right? Youth and worship pastor. So anyway, great song. It fits this morning. Looks like we have the Valley Bible Church horseshoe going on. That seems to be, we call that this. Thursday night, we, uh, we hosted an event for... The Path of Life, which is a, um, a pro-life organization, and we had a lot of people here. Everybody came and sat up front, first of all. I wish we could do that here, so I'm just a little bit of a rebuke to you all, <laughs> anyway. So we got the horseshoe going, but I hope uh, you in the back can, uh, can see what's going on. All right, um, we're going to pray, and then we're going to continue in our study of 1 Corinthians. So pray with me, please. Father, we confess to you that we truly have not sought you as we ought. We've trifled away hours this week on things that are of no significance or eternal consequence, save that we will be accountable for them. And we have worshipped lesser gods, and we confess that to you, for we rarely confess to you idolatry, But we will see in our text of Scripture this morning that we certainly do partake of the worship of lesser gods. But we are grateful, Lord, that when we confess to you our failings of the weak, that we are granted an immediate pardon through Christ. We thank you for the privilege of being your redeemed, of being sanctified by the blood of Christ, being in a covenant relationship with you. And we're grateful, Father, that you have given to us all that we need to live godly, tranquil lives in Christ Jesus. May we make use of your gracious gifts and teach us this morning, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite short Christmas stories, and you've probably heard it before, but uh, it was a Christmas program where there was a children's choir singing, and um, the choir was singing um, the great hymn of Christmas, O Come All Ye Faithful, and one of the little girls didn't have the chorus quite right, but was belting it out at the top of her lungs, O Come Let Us Ignore Him. Grace Ignored. Or Christ adored. It's one or the other for believers. Either we adore him as the Christ or we ignore his grace given. And oftentimes we do, either by neglect, sometimes by out and out rebellion, we squander and we let go of and we do not make use of all that God has provided for us. Christ adored means Christ worship. That's what we're talking about here, Christ worship. And grace ignored descends into idolatry. And that is the topic of Paul's writings of 1 Corinthians 8, 9, 10, and 11, verse 1. He's talking about idolatry. This was a warning for the Corinthians. They had been given much. They had been given grace. And yet they were flirting with disaster flirting with the disaster of idolatry. 
We looked at chapter 8 a number of weeks ago where Paul introduced the whole subject of eating meat, sacrifice to idols. And he said, you, you guys, you think that you have this freedom to... Yeah, I know you're not taking part in the actual sacrifices, but you're going to the temple and you're eating this meat sacrificed to idols. And you need to be careful because some with a weaker conference see this that you think is a freedom, that you're, you're actually abusing your freedom, and they are caused to stumble. Not offended, but caused to stumble back into the sin of idolatry, which is very, very serious. Paul then uses his own example in chapter 9 that, yes, he has freedoms, but he, 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 he foregoes those freedoms for the sake of others, and he does all things for the sake of the gospel. And he all, does all things for Christ. And he's in the race, and, he, and he, he asks that they would be in the race as he is. And he says, I discipline my body, make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Even Paul did not put himself above the possibility that he would fall to sin. And so he is warning the Corinthians... And having given himself as an example, he's going to turn to the wilderness wanderings and see those who actually were disqualified from the race, who fell. So if you have your Bibles, I would like you to turn to 1 Corinthians 10. And we're going to read this morning, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 11. In the book of Hebrews, we read... For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And to that end, would you stand in honor in deference to God's word to us? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. The word of God. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And God's people said, Thank you. Please be seated. 
We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 to begin, and we're going to see five ways in which God gave to the Israelites incredible privilege. And by looking at this, we're going to see spiritual privilege must not be squandered. God gives us his gifts of grace. By privilege, we mean that we are God's chosen. We, as with the Israelites and the Corinthians, we are redeemed. We have the blessings of God. We're in covenant relationship with him. And as God's chosen and redeemed, we have significant advantages and privileges and standing that the Egyptians did not have. They were not God's chosen people. But the Israelites had this great privilege and advantage that God had given to them by choosing them. So in verses 1 through 4, we're going to see the privileges of Israel, and there are five privileges that that we're going to list. Before we get to the first one, in verse 1 we see this. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. The for, the word for, ties us to the previous words of Paul, where Paul said... I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself would not be disciplined for I do not want you to be unaware of those who were disqualified. He goes on to explain, giving examples of those who didn't exercise control in the race. They didn't finish well. And in the matter of idolatry, they failed to gain the prize. And he doesn't want them to be unaware. There's, missed, there's some gaps in their understanding. They don't, there's a, a story behind the story. Yeah, you have the Sunday school story of uh, uh, the Red Sea and the wilderness wanderings. But there are lessons to be learned from that that are for all the ages. So five privileges are given. And the first one is found in the second part of verse 1. That our fathers were all under the cloud And second, all passed through the sea. Two privileges there. They were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea. The Corinthians recognized immediately with this language, the cloud and the sea, that he is talking about the wilderness wandering. He's talking about about the redemption of slavery in Israel. He's talking about the exodus. They were well taught. Even the Gentiles would have recognized this. All our fathers, all of them, who came out of slavery in Egypt were under the cloud. Obviously, the cloud that he's talking about is the pillar of cloud and fire that led them in the wilderness. But also there was a cloud that was on Mount Sinai that they were under. And that cloud represented the glory of God. That cloud represented his protection, his provision. It represented the fact that he was their redeemer. He was their Lord and he was their God. And he led them throughout the wilderness in the, in the cloud. Moses went up on Mount Sinai when the cloud was there and there was thunder and lightning, but he was in the cloud. And that is the place where God gave to him the Ten Commandments. So the first privilege that they had is all of our spiritual fathers were under the cloud, this cloud of perfection, per, perfection and glory of God. And second, they all passed through the sea. They passed through the sea. At Sinai, the cloud hid God's glory, and they were under his protection, but then they passed through the sea. Remember the story. They had, uh, on the night of Passover, they killed the Passover lamb, 
and they painted the blood on the, on the lintel and the doorposts. And those who had not sacrificed to the, the lamb, to the Lord, the angel, the destroyer, came through and killed all the firstborn. And then that night they grabbed all their stuff and they hightailed it out of there. And they left. And Pharaoh let them go. And the pillar of cloud led them to the edge of the Red Sea. But they were hemmed in between the sea and between the wilderness. Pharaoh changed his mind and he went to pursue them. And God said to Moses, Moses, deliver them. And Moses said to the people, stand back and see the salvation of the Lord. And he held up the staff and all night long, the wind of the Lord from the pillar of cloud, it, it, uh, it parted the seas and they passed through on dry land. And when they passed through to the other side, it enclosed upon the Egyptian army, thus destroying the enemies of God. So passing through the Red Sea is indicative of the final culmination of their redemption, of their deliverance. It wasn't until they got to the other side that they were really fully delivered because their enemies and God's enemy was destroyed in the Red Sea. This is the means by which God freed them from slavery in Egypt and redeemed them to be his own possession, his people. Similarly, the Corinthians and we are set free by Christ's redemption, the cross of Christ, and we are delivered on the other side as well. The third privilege they had was verse 2. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. What, an, what is he talking about? Baptized into Moses? When we think of baptism, we think of baptism by immersion, believer's baptism. We have church in the park and church behind the, the church where we baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But Paul is using the word baptism in a metaphorical sense, obviously. It's an, an, an analogy. He doesn't mean that they were literally baptizing people and going out to the Red Sea and saying, Elihu Levinson, I now baptize you in the name of Moses in the Red Sea. They weren't doing anything like that. He is talking about the metaphorical use of baptism. Even when we talk about baptism, there is this metaphorical sense. There's, there's physical baptism, but its meaning is deeper because it is a mean, its meaning is we are baptized into Christ. We are united with him in his death and resurrection. We are joined with him by his spirit. And we are identifying with Christ. So for the Israelites as participants of the Passover, in deliverance to the cloud and the Red Sea, they are identified with Moses as we are identified with Christ. Moses was the mediator of that covenant. Christ is the mediator of a better covenant. And so when they went through this baptism, as it were, they were identified with the mediator of the covenant, who was Moses, and all that the covenant meant. They were identified and united with him in the same way that the Corinthians were united with Christ, through the blood of Christ. Now they were literally under the cloud and they literally passed through the sea, but the deeper meaning is their new life as redeemed people began with a baptism. 
in the same way that our new life as redeemed people in Christ begins with baptism as well. The fourth privilege that they had says they all ate the same spiritual food, verse 3, and verse 4 is the fifth privilege, and all drank the same spiritual drink. The privilege of all eating spiritual food and drinking spiritual drink, Paul is beginning to move toward the point, and he is alluding here to communion. He just talked about baptism, and now he's talking about communion, the bread and the cup, the food and the drink. The bread that the Israelites had was manna from heaven, spiritual food. It is spiritual because it came down from heaven. That is, it was supernatural, and God provided it for them during their 40 years in the wilderness. The spiritual food was that manna from heaven. It was so important that that Moses, the first time this is said, was this by Moses. He said, um, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Even Jesus, when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, what did he say to the devil? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He would go on in John chapter 6, in our study of John, we saw this, those difficult words. He said, I am the true bread that comes out of heaven. And you must eat my flesh and drink my blood if you are to have eternal life. That is, you have to participate in his death and resurrection by faith, not literally eating his his flesh and drinking his blood, but by our faith in him and our baptism and being united with him in his death and resurrection, we have spiritual drink and spiritual food. Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread, and that is Jesus. So they had spiritual food, they had spiritual drink, both were literal bread and literal drink, but they have this significance that is spiritual, and he says they drank from the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. While they were in the desert, if you remember the wilderness wanderings, at the very beginning, um, Moses, uh, just as they came out, there was a, they, they, found a, um, they found a well at Marah. But later on, they complained because they didn't have any water. And that's the time that God told Moses to take your rod and strike the rock, and from it will flow water. And that's what happened. The next time that we read about water flowing from a rock is at the end of the wilderness wanderings where God told Moses to speak to the rock and he got angry with the people and he hit the rock. Beginning of the wilderness wanderings and the end, but in the middle, as it says, they were continually drinking. There was a rabbinic legend that said there was a literal rock that followed them in the the wilderness. It's kind of odd, isn't it? That's uh, every time... You see that rock? Was that here a minute ago? I don't remember. But uh, that was a rabbinic legend, and we don't have anything to indicate that's what happened. But what he is saying is throughout the wilderness wanderings, it was real water that was provided. But notice he says that the rock was Christ, almost as an afterthought. It was real water, but it was Christ who was there providing the water. The pre-incarnate Christ was in the wilderness. 
He was with them throughout. He was following them. Yahweh was leading them with the pillar of cloud. Christ was following them. Of course he was. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are always everywhere. And Christ was involved in everything even before he took on human flesh. It wasn't like a football game where Jesus was on the, on the bench and it's halftime and then God says, okay, Jesus, you're in, second half. Go and become a man. Christ was always working because he is God. So the presence of Christ was with them. What a privilege. So he's saying to the Corinthians, look at what they had in the Old Testament. They were under the cloud, the covenant of God. They, they, they passed to the sea. They were redeemed. They drank spiritual water and ate spiritual food, and Christ was with them. And Corinthians, you have been baptized, and you have the bread and the cup. You have spiritual food and drink. Don't squander it like they did, which is what we see in verse 5. The privilege is squandered. Verse 5 says, Nevertheless, the big word, With most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. With most of them, God was not well pleased. Let me ask you a question. Of the hundreds of thousands of Israelites who on the night of Passover sacrificed and left and were under the cloud and then passed to the sea on the other side, of the hundreds of thousands of Israelites, how many went into the promised land? Two. Joshua and Caleb, that's all. Even Moses was disqualified. Cautionary tale for the Corinthians and for us as well. The second part of the verse, for they were laid low in the wilderness, is almost a euphemism because it sounds like they they kind of laid low. No, one text in in the book of Numbers says uh, the corpses were strewn in the wilderness. Very graphic. God was not well pleased with them. They had great spiritual privilege, even though the Israelites experienced incredible blessings of grace. They squandered them. They spurned them. They turned their back on God's grace. They were God's chosen nation, redeemed. They were set free. They were under God's covenantal love and protection. He gave them spiritual blessings and direction and sustenance. He was their leader. And all of those things, all of those advantages did not guarantee their success. Because they chose to go the other way. Two things we see in verses 1 through 5. Privilege does not mean immunity from consequences of sin. Just because you're a member of Valley Bible Church, just because you attend here, just because you've been baptized, because you take communion on a regular basis, that's not, it's not um, an inoculation against sin. It doesn't give us immunity. It doesn't give us license to sin. And sometimes people uh, 
view things like going to church and being a member and being baptized and partaking of communion, they, they treat those things superstitiously. I know I've been a bad boy this week. I'll just go to Mass. I've been a bad girl this week, but I'll go, I need to go to church and I need to, I need to listen to the sermon and I need to take communion. That's exactly what the Israelites were doing. Hey, we're God's people. That's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. Oh, it's not such a big deal. They minimize the eating meat sacrifice to idols. We're not really sacrificing. We're just eating. That they were flirting with disaster. Second of all, the Israelites and the Corinthians were given enormous spiritual advantage. But we far more. We have more than the Israelites. The Corinthians had more than the Israelites. And we have more than the Corinthians. We have it all. So will it be grace ignored or Christ adored? It's up to us. Will we worship Christ or will we squander the grace given to us? In 2 Corinthians, Paul would say, whether, where I'm, whether I'm at home or with the Lord, it is our ambition to be pleasing to the Lord, to live a life in which He is pleased and He smiles at us. So that at the end of our life, He says to us, well done. We don't want there to be any sense in which He's not pleased with us because we've squandered His grace and spurned it. So we should not do that. In verses 6 and 10, Paul's going to show how this happened in Israel. Spiritual privilege scorned has disastrous consequences. When we have all the advantages that God gives to us, all the blessings of every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, we have all those things and we spurn or scorn or turn our backs on His blessings and advantages and it turns into idolatry there are disastrous consequences so just as there were five privileges there are also five warnings for us or five examples of how they failed and the first is this in verse 6 now these things happen to them as examples for us now there are lots of good examples in life and we need to follow those who are good examples. But we can also learn from negative examples, can't we? And that's what we see here. We see negative examples that we are to learn how not to do things. In fact, in many ways, I think that uh, this is the counterpart of Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 talks about the heroes of the faith. 1 Corinthians 10 is rogues gallery of those who failed in the faith. Now these things happened as examples for us for a purpose so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. That we would not be drawn to and crave the very things that pull us away from Christ. So as we go through these, I'm going to give the negative that Paul gives, but I want to also provide a positive exhortation. And so the first one is don't crave evil things. Okay, you got that? That's the example. Don't do that, all right? But the positive is Galatians 5.16. Walk in the spirit 
and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. If you are adoring Christ, if you are worshiping Christ, if you are here with God's people, if you are studying God's Word, if you are confessing and forsaking sin, if you are a student of the Word of God and walking with His Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And the the word desire is the same word that says they craved, they lusted after evil things. And the antidote for us is is positive. Not just to cower back and try and avoid these things, but to lean into our walk with Christ. The second negative example is found in verse 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they stood up to play. This is the, the incident of the golden calf. Moses was up on Mount Sinai. He'd been there for a long time. We know he was there for 40 days and 40 40 nights. The people were down below. The cloud was over them. They got impatient and said, we don't know whatever happened to that guy, so we're going to do our own thing. And they convince Aaron to make a golden calf. And they make this golden calf, and then they say, Behold, your God who delivered you from Israel. People were insufferable, weren't they? We think, how on earth could they do such a thing? And Aaron let them get away with it. But notice the only part of the verse that uh, Paul quotes here is the second part, that people sat down to eat and drink, eat and drink, and stood up to play. The first part says they made a calf and they offered sacrifices. So the actual sacrifice was pagan but also was the celebration it was pagan idolatry as well and he's pointing forward he's going to get to this in chapter 10 that this close association with pagan idolatry whether you're in the sacrifice or on the other side with the celebration oh we're going to the temple but we're not part of the sacrifice we're just meeting some friends for a steak he's going to we're going to see demons are involved in this And it's disastrous because it's leading toward idolatry. The Corinthians were minimizing their their involvement in the whole thing. So the exhortation for us is, don't be idolaters. Got that? Okay, pretty simple, right? Don't do it. Don't be idolaters. But the positive exhortation from the words of Jesus, when he was tempted to idolatry, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Let me ask you something. If Jesus was tempted with idolatry, do you think you will be spared that temptation? Hardly. We don't think we are, but we are. If Jesus was tempted, we will be in this area. Idolatry, of course, is anything worshiping anything other than God. And we say, well, I, I worship God alone. I, you know, I'm a member of Valley Bible Church and I go to worship. Richard Keyes gives this definition of an idol. He says, an idol is something within creation that is inflated to function as a substitute for God. Anything in creation that is not the creator. Anything in this world 
that we inflate as more important than God. When we want something in the created world more than we desire the Creator, we are worshiping an idol. Nancy Piercy put it this way, an idol is anything we want more than God, anything we rely on more than God, anything we look to for greater fulfillment than God, idolatry is thus the hidden sin driving all other sins. That's the last thing we think of. When was the last time you said, Oh Lord, forgive me for my idolatry? It's the last thing we think of. And yet idolatry is the thing over which God continually contended with his people. Idolatry was the the reason they didn't make it into the promised land. Idolatry was the reason they went into captivity. Both were idolatry. In fact, you might even say idolatry may have been the original sin. Pure worship between God and Adam and Eve. Satan comes in and says, as God said, and they turned and spurned God's, spurned God's grace. They ignored it. Instead of worshiping God, they turned to worship other things. The rest is history. We are blinded to the subtle nature of idolatry in our culture. When it came time for the Israelites, when they made the golden calf, um, why did they think of a golden calf? It was uh, part of the, the Canaanite worship and Egyptian worship. And they knew the ceremonies. They knew from paganism that um, um, worship means you have a deity that you trust in and you make an idol that looks like the deity and you make sacrifices and you make vows and then you have a celebration. It's a counterfeit of everything that we do. It's a counterfeit. But they knew exactly what to do. It was just they, didn't, they had the religion. They didn't have the truth. They knew that sacrifices were made to deities and then they knew to celebrate and Paul's referring to the celebration part. Corinth was the same way. Everyone worshipped, just as today, everyone worships something. We just think, oh, well, we're we're the only ones. Just a small group of Christians in the United States, we're the only worshippers. No, everyone is a worshipper. Everyone has something absolute in their life. In Corinth, everyone went to church in the pagan temples. The lines were clearly drawn, and it was much easier to see as a Christian, oh yeah, the pagans are going to the temple, but we're Christians. We are at the other end of the spectrum because we live in a secular society, and yet people are still worshiping, just not in the cultic sense if we were surrounded by pagan temples on Saturday and Sunday and people were, they were full, it would be easy. I'm never going to go there. I'm never going to go there. Idolatry today is more insidious for us because it is not idols made to look like deities that we worship. We worship other things like this. In those days... Chad Ingle said this at our um, uh, sermon prep time. In those days, you had to go to the idol. In these days, the idol comes to you. They're everywhere. 
everywhere. Sports. I love sports. No said. Politics. Money and success. These are all idols. Alcohol or drugs. If that's more important to you than, than, and, and more time and energy spent there, it becomes an idol. Even, you know, I've got to function. I can't go without it. Entertainment. How many more subscriptions to streaming do you need, right? Food. Beauty and fitness is an idol in our culture. Youth is worshipped, so we end up worshipping our very bodies. Everything is always calling out to us to do this for yourself. Make yourself better. Make yourself more healthy. Make yourself more attractive. Make yourself more popular. And those things become more important to us than God himself. The cult of social media and the idols of Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter, they're all little idols in the same religion. So whatever occupies your time, whatever occupies your affection, your resources, your money, whether it's children or a spouse or your job or retirement, you can go on and on and on. Any of those things, more than God, it's an idol. So again, I ask you, when was the last time you said to the Lord, forgive me for my idolatry? The third failure that we learn from is found in verse 8, where Paul says, Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. In Numbers 25, this is what he's talking about. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, for they invited the people to sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate down and bound to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord God was angry with Israel because the men were having physical sexual relationships with the women and intermarrying. And he called it harlotry. Because immorality and idolatry are always closely related. Because idolatry is, in the spiritual sense, is spiritual adultery against God because we're, we're flirting with someone other than God. We're, we're loving someone other than God or something other than God. And that is idolatry. He is a jealous God of our affection and our love and our obedience. In chapters 5, 6, and 7... Paul had already addressed immorality, and we've gone over it, and we've gone over it. But the last thing he said was, flee. Flee immorality, because it is everywhere, isn't it? So the exhortations to us are these. Don't be immoral. Okay, you got that? That's my, my encouragement to you. Don't do it, all right? Don't be immoral. On the other hand, positively, put on the Lord Jesus Christ Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Flee immorality. Idolatry and immorality is everywhere. Isn't it everywhere? We were talking the other day about there's a, 
um, in the sermon prep time, there's this website that I go to, and I have ad blockers, but there, there's this ad they still get through. I'm not sure how. Uh, this ad that keeps coming up about women's clothing. And some of it is very provocative, and I don't want to look at it, and I press, there's a button that says, you know, I don't like this ad, I don't like this ad, I don't like this ad, and it keeps coming and coming and coming. We can't get away from it. Immorality is persistent. It is pursuing us. Watching TV, driving down the street, on the Internet, commercials. We are continually bombarded, and we are molested. We are daily groped, are we not? It is everywhere that we look. Make no provision for the flesh. Men staying up late, cruising the internet, be careful. Don't put yourself in a position with another person that compromises and looks evil and is a temptation to sin. We have to put on Christ himself and the power of Christ and the gospel of Christ like a garment. And we put him on, and that is our protection so that we can flee immorality. And fourth, the fourth example, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. You know the story in Numbers 21. They despised God's gracious provision of manna. They wanted meat. God said, okay, I'll give you meat. And he gave them quail. And it turned rotten in their mouths. And a plague killed many of them. They were testing God. Back in Exodus, it says, what they said was, is the Lord among us or not? Let's have him show us. If he's among us, then he's going to provide more than manna. So what do we learn? Don't put Christ to the text, because I think that's the, the, the proper reading here, where it says, do not put the Lord to the test, nor let us try the Lord, nor let us try Christ. Don't put Christ to the test. They were testing the patience of God in the wilderness. He was gracious with them. Oh, he gave them the cloud. He gave them the deliverance. He gave them bread and drink, sustenance, deliverance, protection, we want more. And they wanted to get away with more. Testing the Lord is a, an abuse of His grace. The opposite is to trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. When we place our trust in Him, we don't understand sometimes His provision for us, but we just trust Him and they should have done that. Testing the Lord is a game of chicken. See how far we can go. And we get to a point where we say, well, you know, I can always presume on his grace. And if I, guilt, if I just sin, God's going to forgive me if I confess it later. That's what the Israelites did. And that's what the Corinthians were doing as well. What can I get away with? Fifth, the fifth example for us to learn from is in verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. There are so many opportunities and so many examples of grumbling in the book of Numbers. It's hard to find exactly which one he's talking about here. But it's important for us to know that they grumbled and they murmured and they complained. And all of those words are monopoetic words. 
which if your zip code is 99016, it means words that sound like what they are. Okay, never mind. <laughs> Some of you know what your zip code is. So murmur, 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 murmur. Grumble, 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 grumble. The Greek word is gagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagagag
They were just being written at that time. People think, oh, to see the cloud and the pillar of fire and the parting of the Red Sea, that would have been something, right? But we would have complained and we would have worshipped false gods. Or to say, oh, to be personally taught by the great Apostle Paul in the city of Corinth and to see his apostolic uh, miracles. And yet we still would have presumed on his grace and spurned it, just like the Corinthians would have. So two things. God's grace was sufficient for Israel. God's grace was sufficient for the Corinthians. God's grace is sufficient still more for us. You have all you need. You have all you need. Don't spurn and turn your back on that grace. And the second one, the more familiar and faithful we are to Scripture, the less prone we will be to idolatry. As we immerse ourselves in truth, as we adore the risen Christ, as we partake of spiritual food and spiritual drink, and I want you to prepare that, because we should be prepared this morning for the Lord's table in a unique way. Paul is going to talk about the Lord's table in chapter 10 and in chapter 11. And in chapter 11, just as some were disqualified in Israel and God killed them, even in Corinth, Paul said, and some of you are sick and a number sleep because you have misused the bread and the cup, the table and the Lord. So, in conclusion, grace ignored or Christ adored. Will you ignore God's grace or will you adore him as Christ and worship the Lord as God? Father, we thank you for the bread and the cup, which reminds us of the soon coming Christ. We thank you for baptism and communion. We thank you for the privileges of the Holy Spirit and the new nature in the church, answers to prayer and all that you've given to us. And we declare the Lord's death until he returns. In his name, amen. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And God's people said, would you stand and would you sing with me? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see.